Is there anything uh, exciting that's happened to you in, in between the last episode and this one? Uh, I, I put in my two weeks notice for my job. That's pretty exciting. Oh, really? Yeah. So instead of having one unemployed podcast, we still have two. <laughs> <laughs> so the podcast is going to be that much better. <laughs> yep. Hey, welcome to Project A+. Hey, hi. Anyway, we're going, to, we're going to talk about some stuff this week. Some stuff being movies. Primarily, yes. We may make some room for a, a funny anecdote or two. Um, so we're, going to talk about, uh, we're going to talk about three movies in particular, right? What? Three? Yeah. Uh, a Star is Born, Un Film de Bradley Hooper. <laughs> so that, uh, and then we've... Moved on from our, uh, I think, award-winning coverage of the films of Nagasaki Oshima. <laughs> We've t- taken a plane uh, westward to Germany and back in time to uh, West Germany <laughs> to uh, start our mini-series on the films of Rainer, Werner, Fassbender. And um, the two films we're covering today are two of his uh, gangster trilogy, the third of which I've not seen. Um... Love is Colder Than Death, and The American Soldier. Okay, um, But before we get to that exciting film coverage, uh, Hugh, I think you have a funny story you'd like to share with the class. I do, I do. Well, please, go ahead. So in my continuing efforts to uh, economize, I have downgraded the brand of margarine that I purchase. Uh-huh. Because I, I realized that would save me money. I don't care that much about the taste of margarine to invest heavily in this particular brand. So I, I downgraded to the home brand and I realized that for like a fraction of the cost, I could get like this one kilo tub uh-huh. of a product that's literally just called spread. <laughs> the only reason I use margarine at all mm-hmm. is as the underlayer on my toast, upon which I then spread either Marmite or Vegemite. So it's toast, spread, spread, basically. Yes. The fat works in conjunction with the Vegemite. That's how Vegemite's supposed to work. It makes it edible. Yes. Is that that the entire story? Yeah, I was just so (laughs) pleased to have this tub and it's like a so the, the cost in australian dollars is like a dollar 60 for like a one kilo <laughs> tub of spread that lasts for a long time and the taste was like fine like I, I noticed no difference in the better brand that i was tasting based on olive oil or something i love it it's got spread <laughs> it's great that made me so happy now movies this next song's called bean as i'm a man bean as i'm a man I do what I can to be the man that I am, oh yeah. And when it gets rough, I hit the hard stuff, but it's never enough, oh no. You're not a honky-tonky road. Your accent is phony, your speech is unclear, oh, oh. Your last record sucks, but honey don't. Self-destruct on me. Uh, so the first film we're going to talk about tonight, because it's always tonight when you're listening to the podcast, of course. 
is Bradley Cooper's directorial debut, A Star is Born. Actually, did you know that this movie is a remake of another three films, all of which are also named A Star is Born? We will not be talking about any of those, except for the one that we do talk about in addition to this one, because <laughs> you watched it. Yes, I watched it. Okay. <clears throat> a Star is Born, 2018, an essay by Hunter Sawyer. <laughs> Webster's defines star. <laughs> so it almost feels unnecessary to go over this film's plot. It is a story as old as time, or rather, Hollywood itself. Famous man meets an unknown talented woman, elevates her to the heights of fame. As her career ascends, his falls and then tragedy ensues. In this particular case, the scene is, rather than the Hollywood of the first two stars borns, and the rock and roll playground at the third, pop music. The man and woman are Jackson Maine, which is Bradley Cooper's character's name, and Allie, last name missing, which is Lady Gaga's name. Uh, Jackson discovers Allie performing at a drag bar one night, takes her under his wing and into bed, and she achieves ever higher levels of success while he is undone by his failures as a man and as a musician. While Cooper's version of the film adds a few twists, to the by-now cliché trappings of this original story. For instance, an intense, complicated brother dynamic with Sam Elliott playing Jackson Maine's much older brother and uh, bringing his character's uh, addiction to opioids and alcohol to the forefront of the film. And also sort of bringing in this uh, sort of tired and hackneyed pop music versus rock authenticity debate. Um, the essential spine of the film is the exact same as the others, as far as I can tell. Uh, the question is, then, does Cooper's cover of A Star is Born justify rehashing the story for the fourth or fifth time? Or is this new A Star is Born an exercise in rote recitation? And, most importantly, Hugh, did you tear up or cry at all during this film? <laughs> okay, so first of all, that style of what you just wrote, which is a bit looser, right? Uh-huh. And a bit uh, less recitative than your previous uh, iterations of, of this particular mechanic that we've introduced into the podcast, uh-huh. was spot on, I reckon. That sounded good to me. I liked the way that it was short, it was concise. <laughs> did you like how I sounded like I didn't want to read it and I hated it everywhere that was going to my mouth? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that maybe that was maybe that was the thing that gave it life. <laughs> My abject hatred for everything that I've ever written. Well, because it sounded it sounded more like <laughs> speech, I guess. Okay. Maybe because you were underselling, underselling it or something. I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, I liked I liked how that came across. Great. Like, I can work with that. Um, mine are even like more prosaic than that. So. Great, great, great. So. Uh, uh, so I should answer the question you posed. Yes, you you've done this literally every time I've done this. <laughs> I know. I like to just answer my own questions and then forget what you asked me. So what did you ask me? Again? <laughs> I asked oh, you. Oh, did I need to see this another time? No, I asked you three questions, but I can condense it to which three is, questions. Yeah, I know, motherfucker. You should pay attention. Um, but I'll condense it to two. Uh, did you think that this film was justified its own existence? essentially and did you cry at all okay so i'll answer the second question first just to (laughs) okay just to set that aside no i didn't uh cry at all i didn't really feel emotion in this film to be honest and obviously you know that it's not that difficult to make me feel emotion but but hugh 
maybe it's time maybe it's time to let the old ways go <laughs> or maybe this is like a brechtian thing and it was intentionally distancing me from the character so i could assess the situation yeah, yeah exactly to to um objectively understand the mechanics of capitalist oppression via uh, celebrity yeah yeah i think that's that's obviously what cooper was going for no, i'm not saying this as a criticism of the film but no it didn't i didn't approach tears at any point in this film did you no <laughs> okay there was some parts where i was like oh that's pretty sad but i never like the only stuff that really worked for me in this movie in terms of like an emotional level was the um brother stuff i guess we both have brother dynamics that we can relate to yeah yeah exactly um, but aside from that, uh, it's kind of just like whatever for the most part in this movie. <laughs> I was like, kind of at, when I was watching, I was like, why is this getting such stellar reviews? <laughs> I, I was mystifying to a degree. So I, I think we can attribute that to a couple of things. So first of all, uh, to answer the question I haven't answered yet, does this version need to exist? I'd probably say not really. Um, as to why it's getting such positive write-ups i think we can attribute that to a the fact that cooper is an untested property as a director that's true and and he's making the transition from high profile actor to director so there's always that slight skepticism that might accompany that and and maybe the fact that it was better than people expected it to be can lead them to overrate it yeah and i guess the other factor is lady gaga yeah the fact that obviously she's also an untested property in terms of being an actor so it's kind of a pleasant surprise on two fronts and i don't know maybe they got more emotionally invested in the film uh, than we did perhaps I, I don't know i feel like i feel like even then even with those things that you just said in mind like, it still isn't like like this movie is getting like raves and raves like it's not just like getting, you know like a pretty positive response you know what i mean looking at just like the I don't know, like Rotten Tomatoes is a better character, obviously, and kind of useless, but like looking at the scores, right, that it's getting, this is movies scored higher than like Mission Impossible, Ghost, or Fallout, which is a much superior film, I think, I'm getting great. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not sure. But I think the overall problem I had with this film, actually, there are, there are many problems I had with it, but I think it loses this momentum at the exact point where Gaga becomes a success. <laughs> at the exact point where she is born. <laughs> Well, I mean, you could say the star is born when she first makes her appearance uh, on stage with Bradley Cooper. More like a star is still born, am I right? You've been holding on to, you've been sitting on that one, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like an egg. It's finally hatched. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think from the point in which she reaches that peak, so essentially her story from rags to riches to some degree has the most energy to it and then the inevitable decline from there and this, i mean i had watched the 1954 version prior to seeing this so perhaps it was even more of an issue in that context than it is for people who are not so familiar with that version yeah but certainly just it just felt like it started to sag at that point and i found the rest of the movie kind of a slog to get through that was my overall problem just on on a basic structural level gotcha just to give uh, people an idea of what to expect stylistically from this film the way it was shot reminded me a lot of jj abrams or damien chazelle with some of the edges sanded off yeah so he's trying to get this visceral intensity going and he focuses a lot on um off-center medium shots and there's a lot of lens flare and controlled handheld sequences to sort of ratchet up the tension and I think that works quite effectively in the 
on stage, backstage kind of sequences, and it does yeah, give you a, a nice perspective of what it is like to be on a stage in that kind of vast, surreal kind of environment. And um, tying into the 1954 version, which is this does in a number of ways, obviously, uh, as well as some of the other versions, he persistently uses the visual motive of the glare of the, of the stage lights and spotlights, which is how the 1954 film opens. Right. So just that visual motive of the actual way that a, a light is distorted sort of serves as like an underlying metaphor of, of these stories about the darker side of the spotlight did you know all the beats of the story um yeah but only because i listened to like a podcast beforehand about it oh, okay because w- one thing i was wondering is how the suicide would play out if you weren't expecting it can I give you a uh, a story from my own life? Because I saw this with my girlfriend, who, had, who was not familiar with like the story at all. Okay. Previous to it, uh, and uh, there's a point at the end of the movie where Jackson Maine and Allie are in bed together, and uh, Allie is like having achieved mega stardom. It's like, oh well, I decided to cancel the European like of my tour, and I'm just gonna stay here and you know just be a happy couple or whatever. And she's like, oh, but tonight's the last show. We're gonna. G- we're going to go out uh, of this tour on a bang. And both Alicia and I uh, started laughing <laughs> in the theater. And then I leaned over to her and said, I bet I know someone else is going to go on the bang. <laughs> so. But then he didn't shoot himself, so. No. So it's sort of disappointing. But uh, I think that, at least in Alicia's mind, the... The narrative structure of the song was incredibly easy to determine. <laughs> so, in your version, he should have said, it's going to be a belter or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So, no, but the, the thing is, so not all the versions have the suicide. The 1976 version, he dies in a car accident. Like, I, I think oh. he was drunk. I thought he had a, I thought he died of an overdose, but maybe, maybe I just understood it. I think he goes on a bender or something, then he's driving to the airport and he crashes his car, is what happens in the 1976 one. The first two have the same suicide, which is the the male character drowns themselves in the sea. I have a, f- a few things to say about the suicide because it, it played kind of oddly to me and I'm kind of have mixed feelings about it. So in one sense, it actually seems more responsible to be a bit more confronting about the suicide. Yeah. Especially in this day and age and less romantic about it. I mean, not the previous versions were necessarily romanticizing it, but there was... A difference in the way it was portrayed so in the new version it doesn't it feels certainly less like suicide was a viable solution to the predicament they were actually in <laughs> and does that feel like it is in the one you watched well that's kind of what i liked about it almost uh, i mean i don't think it's endorsing it as a as a suicidal thing but there is kind of a tragic romantic dimension to it you know like in the similar way to romeo and juliet that kind of tragedy that yeah right it's not so much necessarily saying that this was the responsible right thing that he should have done. The setup is quite different. Like the setup to, I mean, it's along the same lines, but there's some crucial differences. So in the 2018 version, the thing that pushes him to commit suicide is sort of twofold. So he discovers that she's no longer doing this really crucial tour that she was supposed to do. And he's obviously pieced together that it has something to do with him. Yeah. And that he's a burden to her. But it's still, like, inference, right? It's not specifically... He doesn't specifically find out. And also the manager talks about to him about it. That scene is so terrible. It is, yeah. So a similar thing happens in the 1954 version, 
where one of the employees at the studio who had constantly been putting out James Mason's fires all these mm. years and had to, and it was like a burden on his professional life constantly. Um, mm-hmm. Once they were separated, so once Mason gets fired from the studio, he tells him how he really feels about him and it pushes him over the edge and he falls off the wagon again after a brief period of sobriety. But which is kind of a, a really good scene and it's a powerful scene. There's nothing like what happens in the 2018 version, which feels ham-fisted, really. Yeah, for sure. But the specific thing, the last thing that triggers James Mason to do it in the 1954 Judy Garland version mm. is he's he's lying in bed recovering from a, his recent bender or whatever and he sort of wakes up and he overhears judy garland talking to i think someone at the studio i think it was from memory and that she says that she can no longer commit to being an actor at all she loves her husband so much that she doesn't want to risk his health and she wants to look after him full time so she's made like a full-on commitment to completely stop her career because of him right so the decision for him to then commit suicide kind of makes more sense if <laughs> i mean you can kind of understand where he's coming from a little bit more there's a there's, it's got a better it's got a better grounded and psychological like realism yeah like it's literally like the difference between her having a career and her not and i mean imagine his guilt of knowing that uh, whereas the the new one is like sort of a, a lesser series of steps leading up to that point and it, which makes it more I guess a more responsible idea of suicide, which is more that it's a mental health issue because he talks about the fact that he tried to commit suicide when he was 13. Yeah. But all that being said, responsibility in terms of portrayal of suicide aside, if we can put that issue aside... We can. It does not work dramatically nearly as well as how it works in the 1954 version, which has a moving quality despite the nature of what actually happens. And, And I think there's something mysterious when someone drowns themselves as opposed to like hanging themselves in a shed and you have to find their body yeah so that's my main problem with it is the method by which you decide to commit suicide actually i think it's best if you if your body is never found because then there's like a little bit of hope always there you know uh i don't know i don't know where this conversation's going anyway we'll we'll cut we'll cut down the uh, inappropriate bits of that illuminating discussion about suicide (laughs) but but you will include the bit where you're like oh we'll cut down the bit for Yes. Okay, please do. Thank you. So I think the main drawing point to this film, or what people say gives it its power, is the performances, but more specifically the musical performances, and more specifically Lady Gaga's musical performances. I don't know about, but I, I did, I did like when they first do like the main song, like the shallows, right? I thought that was a good performance, and I think it's the method by which they shot the performances is like interesting. Hmm. But um, aside from the that initial one, none of them really made much of an impact on me. And I, I must say that his roots rock music was was dreadful. Oh yeah, <laughs> baby, it's time to let the old ways go. Especially like that opening song, like the full rock band roots rock songs were, were horrible to listen to. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I didn't especially like the uh, Lady Gaga songs to be honest. I didn't really like the the music that much either. So, like, if you're resting the power of this film just on, like, the delivery of these particular songs, I mean, I think they're a little bit lacking, and especially compared to the uh, 1954 Judy Garland version. Yeah. uh, In which the the musical sequences are are wonderful. The portrayal of the songwriting process in this film is laughable, I think. What do you mean? Like, wait, wait, uh, are you telling me that you don't come up with all of your music after 
having a whirlwind uh, experience with a famous musician and then sitting in the parking lot of a shitty grocery store and <laughs> that's not where you write all of your music. Well, yeah, that, I mean, all the songwriting that is depicted in this film happens sort of in the ether. They just kind of pluck the songs out of the air and write them down on bits of paper. There's no revision anywhere. No, at no point is anyone even attempting to set it to a harmonic accompaniment that would be provided by a piano or a guitar to work out where the melody sits, right? (laughs) So it's literally just like the idea of the melody they've got in their head and words written down. They don't record it into a phone or a dictaphone or something. I know it might be boring to other people to have this level of detail, but I... That kind of annoyed me. And especially the the fact... You want that. Especially the fact that... um, So in the aforementioned scene in which they're sitting in a parking lot and Lady Gaga sings him a song that she's been working on. Obviously, she could have been working on that song at a piano previously that we weren't privy to. But anyway, she, she just relays to him one section of the song, which is basically like two lines of the verse. And that's it. He isn't shown writing down anything. And he's been drinking all night. Yeah, and pills, probably. (laughs) Yeah, and pills. Nonetheless, in the intervening time between that night and then the meeting again at the concert, when he's performing, he has managed to take that snippet of melody and arrange an entire song around it correctly. Yeah, is there something unrealistic about that? (laughs) And then um, when Lady Gaga, like, enters the picture, she's able to just slot seamlessly into this arrangement of the song that she's never heard. And gets it perfectly right. But I mean, obviously that's fantasy, but anyway. <laughs> I'm on the deep end, watching that I think we both have problems with that. The notion that this film presents of this kind of dichotomy between authenticity uh, personified by this, this garbage roots rock that Bradley Cooper performs and the high-end pop. But it's also, it's also completely undermined by the fact that Bradley Cooper is giving like, an incredibly inauthentic performance by my account. Which is, it just looks like, I don't know, it's like, it's like the height of like Hollywood vanity in a way. Hmm. Like it just looks so perfectly tailored to like a washed up alcoholic, you know? And there's nothing like, I don't know, there's nothing that feels like lived into this performance at all. Especially his like garbage accent, as we talked about. But I think what's annoying about this dichotomy, because I think, I think it's okay that the character feels that way, right? Yeah. That he feels that Lady Gaga has sold out by going along with this polished pop. Yeah, the problem is the film endorses it to a degree. Yeah, the film doesn't challenge it enough. It doesn't even give Lady Gaga an opportunity to challenge it. So there's, like, a key scene in which um, Jackson Maine is, like, uh, off his mind on pills and booze, and he confronts Allie when she's in the bath and sort of challenges her about the fact that she has, you know, sold out the, the, the true meaning of music or whatever. And he's being really vicious. And he, like the point of the scene is he's supposed to be an irredeemable asshole. Yeah. But that being said, it still doesn't give Ali any opportunity in the narrative to really articulate that what she's doing is at least as valid as what he was doing. Yeah, for sure. And that maybe that she has actually found her voice through this type of pop. Overall, the film seems to be pushed more towards this notion of authenticity. Yeah. Which, again, the funny thing is, if you look at the credits of this film, none of the original songs written for it are written by one songwriter alone. All of them are group efforts, and and that kind of provides an ironic counterpoint to the film's singer-songwriter fetishism. Like, the Lady Gaga songs have, like, five credited songwriters to them. Yeah. And another thing. (laughs) Oh, boy. You're just going on a tear here, huh? 
Again, I haven't seen it, but I'm assuming one of the key scenes from reading its description on Wikipedia of the 1976 version is um, Barbara Streisand's first appearance on the stage with Chris Christopherson. Now, the way they have done it, again, based on the description I read, (laughs) makes a lot more sense to me than the way this version does it. So this version assembles all the same elements, but the way it plays out is a little bit different. Well, the way you, you, you're assuming that it plays out based on a written description that you've read. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, unless the description is, like, completely inaccurate, and it's Wikipedia, so it's obviously it's probably not going to be. <laughs> But anyway, um, I'm assuming on good faith that this is the way the scene plays out in the original, which is that Chris Christopherson is at his own concert, right, with his own band or whatever it is. And it's his fans. And he has brought on this woman who no one has heard of before. So she she comes onto the stage and starts performing. And she's initially greeted with hostility from the audience. Because they're like, what the fuck is going on here? Like, we didn't pay to see this person. We want Chris Christopherson or whatever. But then she wins them over with the performance. Mm -hmm. And that is, like, both inherently dramatic and somewhat realistic. Because I think that's what would happen. Especially if you consider the fact that the the audience like groups for like that sort of shitty roots rock and whatever Allie is doing would presumably be pretty different. Exactly. So uh, what I'm getting to is the 2018 version. The way it plays out is that um, when he brings Lady Gaga on stage to perform with him, and then gets her to come out for an encore in which she performs solo at piano more crucially without him she is instantly accepted by the crowd. Like, there's no, like, moment of hesitation where they're like, what the fuck is this? I don't want to see this guy's yeah. latest groupie play a song. Hey, I, I want to have sex with this girl. Could you please just humor me and let me <laughs> let her come out on stage? <laughs> which, which, I mean, like, it sounds terrible to say that sort of stuff, but that's kind of what you'd expect that some of the crowd would think, yeah, right? Yeah, because obviously the people who go to that sort of roots rock music, they're all awful people, so... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the strange thing to me is that, like... As I said, it's both more realistic to do that and more dramatically satisfying to do it, like to, to have her win over the crowd. So that, that seems strange that they, they didn't do that. <sighs> yeah, there's no point where like her ascent is ever like challenged at all. No, no. There's not really much conflict in this movie at all, like in terms of like the fame stuff. That's why it kind of falls apart, like once she reaches the top, like that's it. Like it's like, okay, what now? I guess we just wait for him to hang himself. Like, that's the rest of the film. So let's talk, let's talk about my favorite character, which is uh, Allie's manager. The British guy. <laughs> I don't know. I, mean, I, I, sw- I swear that guy sounds like he is not British. It's just doing an accent. <laughs> His accent sounded so fake to me. It's, it sounded weird. So when he first came on screen and started talking, I thought it was a cameo by a musician or something because it, it seemed bad. <laughs> yeah, that's how it seems. Because it, it just seems like somebody's doing a bad acting job, which he is too. Yeah. And you're like, why is this character in the movie if he's not like a musician? That's I'm just not recognizing because I'm not like that. You know, I don't really know that much about modern music. It's just some actor. But who is British Americans? So maybe that accounts for why his accent was so bizarre. Um, what did you think of uh, Lady Gaga? I thought she was pr- she did pretty well. I think uh, I think she had presence. You yeah. could see that she wasn't an experienced actor in, in certain sequences. Uh, a lot of the dialogue was apparently improvised to give it a certain feel, which I guess helps non-professional actors to some extent. Uh, but I think she does pretty well. 
I mean, she outshines Bradley Cooper. She definitely does. But, you know, in fairness, I guess I'm, I'm someone who is not a Bradley Cooper fan. Like, I think I would say I almost call myself a negative fan of his. I can't think of a single movie that I like that he's in. Now, you mentioned that you, you kind of liked the addition of the brother dynamic with the Sam Elliott character. I thought Sam Elliott was pretty good in this, actually. This is sort of like the one narrative innovation that the film really brings, which is that um, Bradley Cooper's character, his father, um, essentially, like, uh, was it like he abandoned his original family or just like left them or something? I don't, I don't really get that that much. He said he had a midlife crisis and he moved somewhere else and then impregnated the daughter of a farmer. So Sam Elliott plays his brother. And obviously, Sam Elliott is much older than Bradley Cooper, and that's the way they explain that. But um, essentially, Sam Elliott is like his manager or his road manager, and uh, sort of there's like this tension between them because. Um, he, Sam Elliott, initially wanted to be a musician and Bradley Cooper sort of like stole the spotlight off of him under them. And it, and it says that they are they gesture towards them maybe being like a duo at one point, um, which never really took off. Um, yes. And But Sam Elliott essentially is what keeps Jackson Maine, what, who is the person who keeps him from like completely falling apart. And uh, pretty much the only part of the movie where I was like, wow, but I actually feel some sort of emotion is the scene where he's like drops him off at home after picking up from rehab. That, just that one shot of him like looking back uh, was good. I don't know. With a tear in his eye. Yeah, yeah. it was good. Sam Elliott's a good actor. I was just thinking like I'd be an alcoholic if Sam Elliott was my brother because every time he opens his mouth, it sounds like a whiskey commercial. So <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I was prepared earlier. <laughs> uh, okay, that's, that's a shame. That's good. Should I speak about the 1954 version? I guess so. While we're here, I guess. And not, I won't do like a whole segment on it or anything. But I think it works a lot, a lot better as an overall narrative, uh, and it, and it is partly because I think there is something sort of sinister about James Mason. <laughs> yeah, in this performance, there's, a, there's something in here at least that about James Mason. <laughs> and and I'm glad that we're talking about a James Mason film again after that debacle. Oh God, where please don't. We didn't get to record my impressions due to an audio mix-up, so... Please don't. Please no. Oh, my God. James Miss. <laughs> I'm going to cancel the show. I'm going to do my little review of the 1954 version as James Mason. Oh, Christ. I take it back. Let's not do this. James Mason might be stupid. This is terrible. It sounds like you have like it sounds like you're on, the, on your deathbed. But as I said in that episode in which the audio didn't work out, um, my impression of James Mason is based on Kelsey Grammer's impression of James Mason on an episode of Frasier. So that's what I'm doing. Great. There's a, it's, a, it's a step removed from a direct James Mason impression. So just so you know. Great. It's my impression of Grammer's impression of James Mason. James. James Mason might be stopping, stopping. Uh, he, the way he gets that sibilant S sound is, is, is very distinctive, and I, I can't really get it myself, but I'm going to try. James Mason might be stopping. No, I can't do it. Sorry. Sorry, audience. Anyway, so the 1954 version, I think it has all... If you just look at the Mason character, I think his whole arc is a lot more compelling like just the fact that he's initially quite insidious and there is like issues with the power dynamic initially and the way he's kind of how pathetic he gets in his jealousy and his self-destructive behavior and then gets that moment of selflessness to some degree where he decides to sacrifice himself so that her career can go on it gives that a sort of an added poignancy that uh, the new version doesn't necessarily have because it feels more tame i guess yeah 
My favourite musical sequence of the film is at a point in the narrative at which Mason's already been fired and he's basically just housebound drinking and playing golf um, in his apartment, or their apartment rather. And she comes back from her latest production and she's telling him what the story is and what the sequence is like, but just using makeshift stuff in the apartment to demonstrate it and performing it using the record player, uh-huh. which is delightful, except for the racist bits. <laughs> yeah, that's true for a lot of musicals, though. It's a sort of joke on an American in Paris, but it's an American like all over the world. So oh, she does yikes. various different cultures and she approximates the Chinese segment by putting a lampshade on her head. So you can imagine that bit is great. And then, and then she goes, now we're in Africa. And I'm like, no, 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 come on. <laughs> Jesus Christ. But up until those points, it was like the best. Uh, it was a really great musical scene. But yeah, anyway, but yeah, and, and Garland is amazing in the film. So much better than that Coop, Coop's version. Much better than the Coop's version. Uh, anyway, um, so, uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I have to say about A Star Is Born. The part that I thought was, like, incredibly strange is that, uh, Lady Gaga's character, she just goes by her first name, which is just Allie, and there's this great scene where there's, like, they, they look at a billboard of her face that's in LA, it just says Allie on it, and I'm like, like, what, what is, I can't think of a single performer who's like that, like, Sia? Adele. Adele, Yeah. But is that what they're going for? It's like just those two. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense for what they're going for when she's famous to me. Although Ali's kind of a weird name to pick for that. But Yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> it just sounds so strange. Because Ali sounds too informal to like sit on its own. Like it, sound, it doesn't sound like grand enough. It's like, oh, hey, Ali, how's it going? <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> oh, yeah, my favorite musician, Ali. Whereas Adele has like a power to it. Yeah. Right. And um, other one named people. You kind of need the right one name, don't you? Yeah, you do. And Owie is not it. But it, it is weird that they never give her, like, a last name. Yeah, even just, like, in the preliminary scenes, they should have had, like, Ali Dice Clay or something. <laughs> you should have just been Andrew Dice Clay. <laughs> See, I think we could, we're could. we both sort of bleh on this film. Are you excited for it to win a bunch of Oscars? <laughs> Which people are predicting that I will do. Are you excited for my pastiche of, uh, what is it, Shallows? I'm a demon, watch us all the Okay, is that good? Yes. This is shallows. The shallows. Okay, I'm done. So the annoying, the annoying thing to me about this was me doing that voice. <laughs> no, the, the the pop versus authentic dichotomy that this film presents, yes. right? I liked neither of the music that they both represented. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. But I do like pop music. I definitely right? like pop and music way more than I like shitty roots rock. <laughs> but the type of pop music I like isn't like this kind of balance. I like hooks. Like I like songs with hooks. So that's what I appreciate about <laughs> yeah, pop music. You know what we should do? Do you know what you and I should do? Hmm. Remake this movie but with uh, YouTube culture instead of... <laughs> <laughs> like Logan Paul finding a, an unknown vlogger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It could be like a, a one of our favorite like uh, lifestyle like uh, that pizza lady or the Australian woman. 
right. So uh, at that, or, or I guess like the more natural medium for us would be podcasting. <laughs> yes, the podcasting version would be great. That would be so stupid. I can think. I'm thinking about it. Right, I've already. I've Mark already Maron. done it. Mark yeah, Barron, or you could do like a serial style show. Yeah. <laughs> Who are your guys? <laughs> <laughs> Lock the gates. <laughs> that's that's not what you think that that um, Mark Barron says, right? The podcast is just him saying the soup is over and over again. Yes. If I understand it correctly. Lock the gates. I will deconstruct the drops of the gangster. I will deconstruct the drops and give thanks to my French predecessors, such as Godard and so many more others. Don't get me started. Okay, so this is the segment of the podcast in which we look back at a section of film history. In this case, the output of a renowned West German director. And even if I chose other films, it was still by at your request. Yes. So the reason I requested uh, Rainer Werner Fassbender is because I have never seen any of his films before. And now you've seen two of his films. But I've just heard of him as a renowned director, and I didn't know much beyond that. Inspired by American gangster films and consciously indebted to the French New Wave, Love is Colder Than Death is Fassbinder's first feature-length film as director. While Fassbinder first rose to prominence in the world of theatre and was one of the founding members of an experimental theatre troupe known as Anti-Theatre, he had long harboured an ambition to be a filmmaker and Love is Colder Than Death follows the completion of three prior short films. Now, this is not a film um, where the progression of the plot is central, but I will do my best to describe it. Nonetheless, <laughs> in a sparsely furnished basement, a thuggish pimp named Franz, played by Fassbender himself, is kidnapped by a criminal organisation known as The Syndicate, whose leaders attempt to coerce him into working for them. Yes. Which he refuses to do. Here he comes into contact with another crook named Bruno, who the syndicate is also trying to recruit and who is played by the actor and director Uli Lamel. Franz manages to secure his release, but before leaving, he provides Bruno with an address where he can be found should Bruno also find himself released in future. Now, Bruno does get out under mysterious circumstances and he eventually manages to track down Franz and a prostitute named Joanna, whom Franz is the boyfriend of and pimp of i guess yes played by hannah shagula 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 uh i don't know shagula it doesn't matter and it turns out franz is in hiding from a turkish man who believes he killed his brother and bruno upon uh reacquainting himself with franz volunteers to handle the matter himself violently and uh they become a trio of outlaws and hatch a scheme to rob a bank and some other stuff happens that's my summary <laughs> yeah, that's great love is gone i don't want to spoil it all but oh, yeah. yeah some other stuff happens i assume you've seen this film before did you watch it again did i yeah i did did i talk did i talk about it on the podcast no idea because <laughs> i definitely watched it um when we were doing the podcast because <laughs> i watched it in like april <laughs> and i did not remember that much about it <laughs> So I don't know if that says... Don't remember editing you talking about it, but I could have cut the whole segment. So. I think I think you may have just cut it. I don't know what episode it would have been on. Wait, let me get my book of notes. Oh, fuck. 
<sighs> anyway, uh, please continue. What did you make of your first experience with Fassbender? Oh, th- I'm glad you are. Yeah, hey, you're welcome. I'm not sure if I liked the whole film that much. Um, I can see what it's trying to do to some degree. I won't pretend that I understand it's every nuance or plane of meaning. As I said in my introduction, it's intentionally playing on the French New Wave as well as American gangster tropes. Yeah, I think I think I felt that specifically uh, it's most indebted slash slash like deconstructing is a le samurai. And um, he specifically dedicates it to Eric Ramirez. He names one of the characters Erica Ramirez at one point. It was a bit on the nose. <laughs> and obviously the final sequence is breathless. Yeah. It is breathless. And I read that uh, Fassbender divided his films into two categories at this early stage. The films about cinema and the more socio-political films. Yeah, we watched two other films about Kinema. Yes. So it's very much a play on cinema history and the recent history of uh, the French New Wave and the French New Wave's own interpretation of American cinema refracted again through Fassbinder's lens. Yeah. The beginning sequences, which is set in this weird basement with like armchairs and stuff, feels like weird experimental theatre. Yeah. With people against these like stark sets in these dark bodies against these white walls and it's very minimalist yeah it's very it's a very sort of strange mixture of that sort of minimalism which comes up again when they go to the when they go to france's apartment Um, yeah and then like like documentary style like french new wave ish shots yes i was expecting the whole film to like have taken place in that kind of basement setting i thought that was what it was going to be but then it broke out of that which was i was glad for but um and the character's act in a very detached way that's something that's like common to a lot of his films and they even barely interact with one another it seems yeah and there's this early scene on a train where bruno this le samurai stand-in character has this exchange with a woman on a train and it feels like a weird comic deconstruction of a seduction scene yeah that part's great oh actually i actually think i have the uh, exact dialogue Uh, well you can be the woman okay so just sit there (laughs) when i was 16 i was the leader of a gang one day we killed a guy who was sitting on a bench with a girl. We pissed on his head. He came up uh, to tell us off. So we went for him and he just kneeled over with brass knuckles. Then he was dead. Just kicked the bucket. <laughs> that's the seduction. <laughs> yeah, that part is, that, that scene is like probably, it's one of the most more successful bits of the film, I think. Um, just because it is such like a parody of like swaggering, like a uh, gangster, like uh, charisma. And it under, immediate, immediately undercuts the idea of a sort of noble yeah. anti-hero, which is what <laughs> Melville's whole shtick was. Yeah, and like uh, to the point where like, um, what's his name? Uh, Bruno is like barely even, like he doesn't even seem like he's alive for the most part. Because he speaks in like this monotone and most, for the most time, or for the most part, he just like is very like simple sentence construction, but like barely says anything at all. Like, I mean, like Modernoff, a, a Melville protagonist, of course, but it's just completely divested of like any sort of like cool or yeah, charisma. Mm. And in part because it's like, he doesn't, like, unlike uh, Alain Delon, Delon, who was in um, with Samurai, he's like not especially attractive, you know? <laughs> So, and I mean, a lot of the film is pitched like that, I think. Like, it, it takes, like, the sort of archetypes of the gangster genre, like, you know, like, the, the fast-talking, like, pimp, and makes them sort of pathetic. 
<laughs> the one thing that, um, uh, again, I can't say if it's necessarily intended the way I interpreted it, but I, even the violence was like dispassionate and even abstract and robbed of even that thrill of like a gore effect. Like you just... But in a way it makes it more disturbing. Yeah, because it's so casual and nothing. Yeah. Like this the specific bit that's like the most disturbing is like when they beat up the the one guy who comes to see Joanna. And like it, it just cuts to um them or Franz hits him once and then it cuts to Bruno and Joanna just looking at him and it just the, the guy's like screaming like uh, you know, his cries of pain just playing over the shots of them just like sort of like staring detached at him. It's very disturbing. So the the thing that immediately appealed to me about the way it was was put together was those sort of disruptive sequences in which he would initially I think the first one is when he just hangs on Bruno's face for like a way longer than the narrative requires and we just look at his face well it's interesting like putting those shots in and then putting it right next to like almost like pseudo documentary footage like Bruno like driving around the city and stuff like that yeah, there's, so there's a long sequence where we just see footage taken from uh, the window of a vehicle um, going past, like, an urban landscape at night. And a long sequence of the three characters just walking down a road before something finally happens. So there's this dead space kind of created in the narrative, which, again, intentionally removes any normal notions of pacing and excitement that are inherent in the genre tropes that it's kind of working with, which I found interesting. Yeah, and it's it's obviously a very deliberately alienating <laughs> Which he, which he actually gets away from to a degree in some of his later films. I think the standout sequence was the scene in the um, supermarket. Oh yeah, I totally agree. The bizarre sort of like choral music. Like it makes it like this like church of uh, consumerism essentially. Yeah, and, and it's just Bruno and Joanna just pushing a shopping trolley through this supermarket. And it's just this extended take with this bizarre electronic hymnal music. And, like, and Joanna's just like casually stealing stuff. And it's the sort of the, the closest the film gets to a joyous sequence in some respects. It's not like uh, liberated at all for the characters. But I think it ties into like the larger thematic thrust of this film, right? Because it's all obviously about sort of like um, these outlaw characters or these characters that like fall outside the normal bounds of society. But they still conform like to the expected roles that society has placed for them to a large degree, you know? And I, even like you just like reducing it to that like even their like petty little rebellions against like the system aren't enough to do anything really, you know? As exemplified by her like stealing stuff. If I was writing a paper I would use that as a jumping off point. Hmm. But yeah, it's a very it's a very strange one. It's kind of hard to watch at points, for sure. <laughs> Just because it's so, like, there's something so deliberately, um, yeah, alienating or off-pointing about it. Um, but it is, it is, it does have some bits that are funny. I really like the sequence where they steal the sunglasses. Yeah, that, that was a good sequence. And he makes that reference to Psycho, wanting the glasses from the cop from Psycho. They've internalized, like, the, the tropes and, and stuff from American films. I wasn't quite, uh, 100% sold on the film overall, but I did like some of the sequences. It just has, it just has some great moments. And I like that it's so committed to, like, making the sort of gangster cool characters just really pathetic and lame. Uh, so do you want to know how much I wrote about the American soldier? 49 words. It's going to be good. The American soldier, 1970. A mysterious Vietnam vet, played by Carl Scheidt, returns to his home country of Germany to act as some sort of assassin for a trio of corrupt policemen. Along the way, he reacquaints himself with his mother and his weird brother, 
alternately beds and abuses women, drinks whiskey and shoots some people. The end. So I guess the imagery of this film is leaning heavier on the sort of noir type lighting and stuff than the first film was. So the, the imagery has is somewhat less minimalistic and there's more play with lighting and shadow. Um, at, but it is similarly deconstructionist. Um, so before we get into detail about The American Soldier, we will just warn you, if you're interested in watching it yourself, that to get the best effect from watching this film, um, it's best to know as little as possible and just let it happen to you. You'll have a better experience than you will if you listen to our podcast and then watch it. You know, uh, some of the things that I like about this film are that it's like nothing, pretty much. It's just not a movie, and then the final shot's great, and that's it. That's all I would say. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I wasn't, like, yeah, I wasn't on board for this second excursion into deconstructionist, detached abstraction uh, until that element introduced by the weird brother which culminates in that end sequence, which is great. Yeah, I think this one was more enjoyable to watch than Love is Quarter of the Death because it does it excuse some of the more formal deconstructionist methods of that film and indulges a little more in like the actual like genre tropes and specific like camera setups and stuff that you'd expect from this sort of film. If there are some uh, obscure and strange shots, like there's a interesting emphasis on there's like two sequences I can think of that use as far as I can tell like split diopters, right? And maybe the split diopter wasn't even invented until later, but because like there's that image that opens a film where um, the woman uh, is foregrounded while the cops are playing poker. And both the... I, I could tell it was, like, deep focus just in using, like, lighting to sort of separate them or if it uses split die after, but... So it has some interesting formal stuff in there as well, but it's not quite as, um... It doesn't... It's not quite as brecky and alienating as Love is Cold Up and Death. And I do think the the one... The attempts to, um... Psycho- psychologize, uh... The main character, Ricky, are pretty hilarious, too. <laughs> both sort of, like, the, uh... Tacked on Vietnam sort of backstory and also the I mean as we talk about the mother the bizarre mother and brother there's that hilarious scene where they're they walk in like this like wetland or whatever he tells the story about this elephant it is, it's so like facile and stupid that it's it's it becomes like this like weird parody of the idea that you'd want to um find pathos in this uh ludicrous and uh boring character to begin with you know so there, there, there is one thing amidst all this deconstructionist sort of nonsense that both of the films indulge in. I would say the misogyny is, is more reconstructed than deconstructed. <laughs> like, I mean, you could say that the way it reconstructs it is a deconstruction of it. But I mean, I kind of feel it just it's no real better than any other example of misogyny. Like cause the female characters in both of these films just get to be half naked and then shot, essentially. Yeah. But I think I kind of don't continue sort of the... Um, attempt to make uh, the char- charisma of like these gangster types to be like completely ludicrous and, and and absurd, right? And I think the season it most comes through is the bits with the maid, <laughs> which are like uh, incredibly uncomfortable because he just sort of treats her like a piece of meat. <laughs> and it, I mean, it, it, as he sort of touched on in a bit that may or may not have survived, like it does sort of feature some like just undigested mis- misogyny, right? But at the same time, just the, the quickness with which he just sort of, like, kisses her and then, like, just pushes her out of the room is, like, very... It feels like uh, a commentary on sort of, like, the uh, idea of, like, the gangster seducer in in Hollywood films and in just gangster films in general. 
Uh, and the sequence where he murders his would-be paranor- paramour is also similarly, like, constructed in that way, I'd say. But I do agree with you that there are some bits that do just feel like actual misogyny, as opposed to just, like, deconstructed misogyny or, or you know, exaggerating um, tropes in other films. This movie is so... Both these movies feel like such movie movies. It's hard for me to be too, like, upset by anything that happens at them, you know what I mean? Except for some of, the, like, the, the violence in Love is Going to the Death, which is pretty disturbing, but that's not really the case in this film, I'd say. I think that, I mean, sometimes the test is with this type of film, um, when you don't quite know exactly where maybe the the director stands in terms of whether he's just reconstructing something or deconstructing it or what he means by his integration of the portrayal of women. But um, I think that the test at the end of the day is like, who gets to be more interesting? And it's always the male characters. But what if the film you're making is making the point that women aren't afforded interesting roles in films? But you're doing it by example as opposed to... Yeah, I don't think that that doesn't help anything. <laughs> That's like, no, it's a deconstruction of I'm showing how bad it is to show women badly, right? I mean, you could do that, but I, I think there's ways of doing that that, are, that work. <laughs> you know, on that level, if that makes sense. So I will say my overall thoughts after my first encounter with these early efforts of Fassbender... Though there are striking aspects to the construction of these films, uh, like the minimalist imagery, the deliberate tempering of any sense of traditional cinematic momentum, um, the deadpan disassembly of genre tropes, uh, and there's those moments of genuine inspiration, such as like the shopping sequence and the final sequence of The American Soldier. Uh, the overall effect, I think, is something which doesn't seem to offer much to anyone who isn't like required either by curriculum or profession, to write an earnest analytical essay about it. Which isn't to say it's necessarily worthless for what it is, but I don't know. I, th- I think there's a limit to that kind of thing. Yeah, but um, yeah, and the film is like completely redeemed by the final shot, which is just amazing. So, so I think the interesting thing is the most memorable parts of both films are almost the most beautiful and transcendent, right? Not so much necessarily the games, but the weird resonance that the shopping sequence takes on just by the way it's done. Like even be even if you like set aside what it's necessarily communicating in the film or the stuff about consumerism, it has this weird hypnotic effect all its own that really stands out. And the final sequence of the American soldier is kind of beautiful, right? It has a, it has, it has a beauty in the way the actor like grapples with this dead body. I, I I think that's. A, do you have any? Is that it? Do you think we're good on Amer- the American soldier? <laughs> Probably not. But. Yeah.